Hey, I'm Jess O'Callaghan, and this is the Audiocraft Podcast. You're about to hear 99% Invisible's Avery Truffleman make the case for embracing chaos. It's a session inspired by the moments when you're out in the field and your carefully laid out plan is blown to bits. Avery Truffleman has been making stories about design at 99% Invisible for the past five years. In 2018, she made Articles of Interest, a show about clothing and culture which was named a Best Podcast of the Year by the BBC, Curbed, Globe and Mail, LAist, New York Magazine and The New Yorker. She's going to tell us about a time it all went wrong and what she did next. (laughs) Hi, everyone. Whoop. Gonna be a lot of chaos in this. It's part of it. I planned this. <laughs> so yeah, my name is Avery. Hello, and um, I just wanted to start by showing the microphone that I have used to make most of my 99 PI stories. Like until very recently, actually this year, my engineer pulled me aside and was like, "Avery, you have to get a professional recorder." Um, <laughs> but this is just to say, like, no one noticed except my engineer, and I think there is. Um, I think in a lot of podcast conferences that I went to in the States, everyone was like, well, you need like this kind of microphone and this kind of recorder and you need at least like X thousand dollars of gear. No, you don't. You don't. You absolutely don't. Um, I think for a good story, you definitely need to like know your way around your cheap microphone. But I think um, the really the most important thing is having a good idea. And so by a long shot, the question I get asked the most is where do ideas come from? Where do you get your stories? And um, like there's a repository where I just go and like find them. But uh, this was actually the topic of a story that I did a few years ago called The Pool and the Stream. And I'm just gonna play the beginning for you so you get an idea for it. This is 99% Invisible. I'm Roman Mars. When people ask us where we get our stories from, The answer is usually hard to pin down. It could be something one of us noticed walking around, or something a friend mentioned, or some forwarded link on Twitter. It's nearly impossible to say where inspiration comes from, in any art form. It's a long way from the seed of an idea to its execution. So, this story is about the shape of swimming pools. Because a long time ago, (laughs) an architect, so we used to work inside an architecture office, and an architect came up to me and was like, Avery, why are pools, I don't know if it's the same way in Australia, but in California, the pools are all shaped like a kidney bean, right? And she was like, why is that? What's up with that? And I was like, hmm, I don't know. I guess we'll never know. (laughs) And then, (laughs) like, I'm not an architect, I just play one on the radio. And then I got this email from a friend of mine uh, named Andrew Norton. And he was like, he's a radio producer himself and a skateboarder. And he sent me this article that was like, hey, maybe this would be a good blog post, maybe not enough for an episode, but it's about where the first curvy swimming pool came from. And it came from Finland, apparently, and was designed by some famous architect named Alvar Aalto. Again, I'm not an architect. I just play one on the radio, which is actually a benefit. Like every time I was like, Alvaralto, who's that? And anyone who actually knows about architecture would be like, oh, yeah, of course, Alvaralto. Um, and I think having that like novice mindset makes, is, is a benefit. Like it makes you more curious. So it's like the interesting thing about this piece in Andrew Norton's eyes. So Andrew is a skateboarder. And the kidney-shaped swimming pool has been massively important historically 
for skateboarders. And I'll tell you why as we, as we get into the story. But um, actually, no, I'll tell you now, and then I'll tell you how it came together. The skateboarding used to be like this thing that you could only do on perfectly smooth, perfectly flat surfaces. It used to just be this kind of thing where you would slide back and forth and the tricks were like, I can stand on one leg, I can do a handstand. It wasn't what it is now. And the only way that it started to become like low to the ground and you started doing like flips and getting air was um, through the skateboard ramp. And the skateboard ramp came from the swimming pool. It came from the kidney-shaped swimming pool because there was a drought in Southern California in like the 70s and all the swimming pools got drained and all these kids started discovering drained swimming pools and they started skating in them and that's what like created modern skateboarding as we know it. And so it was this interesting thing like so why are all the pools shaped like this? Because the whole thing is the shape of the pool made the ramp. You can't do that if the pool is square. It needs a slope. So (laughs) what is up with this? Why is it like this? They don't have to be this way. So basically this article was like, Alvaralto invented the first kidney-shaped pool. It's in Finland. And as you can see, I'm like, oh, I think I'm going to pitch this to my producer, to my fellow co-producer. It's like, is that kosher with you? And he's like, whatever, it doesn't seem that interesting. Like, I don't know why. (laughs) And that's another interesting thing. When there's like a little prickle, you're like, I don't know why I like this thing, but I'm just going to keep it, keep it in the back of mind. Um, So I think it's really, I tend to sit on ideas for a really long time. I think about ideas for a long time before I act on them. And I think one of the most important things is I talk about them with people all the time. I know there are a lot of people who, a lot of creators, especially in writing, who don't want to share their work in progress because um, there's this Mary McCarthy quote that I love that I keep butchering that's like, in the end, to uh, advertise one's aspirations is to broadcast one's failures. Like, it's kind of vulnerable (laughs) to talk about what you're working on. But I think it's really important because you never know who around you has some connection or some insight into what you're working on. So whenever I meet someone at a party, they're like, hey, how are you doing? I'm like, great, can I tell you about this thing I'm working on? I have this idea. And so um, I was talking to a friend, and we were having coffee, and I was like, do you know anything about like pools and why they're shaped like kidneys? And I was just talking about it. And he mentioned this documentary called Dogtown and Z-Boys. It's a very famous documentary, but I had never heard of it. And it's all about the history of skateboarding. It tells this story about these bored kids, like kids, like under 10 years old in Venice Beach in uh, Southern California, looking for something to do during the day when the surf was bad. And then they took these skateboards and they found these abandoned curvy pools. And then I was like, okay, great. So how did these pools get from Finland to LA? Why is everyone copying this one pool in Finland? So a friend of mine, Luisa, recently moved to Berlin. And Luisa worked on a bunch of episodes of 99% Invisible with me. We're really good friends. And um, one day she emailed me to say that German National Radio was organizing a conference about podcasting and she wanted to know if I could come Uh, present with her and basically was like, we'll fly you out if you want to do this thing. And it felt like a sign because I'm an idiot American. And I was like, as long as I'm in Europe, (laughs) I can go to Finland. They must be very close. They're not close (laughs) at all. (laughs) And that's the other thing. I like went ahead and bought tickets to do things in Finland. I was like, they can't be that far from each other. So stupid. Uh, But once I knew I was going to Finland, I started digging into research about this pool because uh, I really wanted to visit this first primordial kidney-shaped pool. And so it's in this town called Norimaku, and it's in the middle of Western Finland. 
And the building is kind of a museum because it's very architecturally significant, made by Alvaralto. And because of the pool and a lot of the other design elements are really important. And it's a country estate. It's in the middle of nowhere. It's like extreme. That's another thing. I'm like, how big could Finland possibly be? <laughs> very big. Um, so I emailed the, state, the estate about coming to visit and recording and talking to their docents. I'm like, oh, I'm a big deal reporter. I'm like going to bless you with my presence. And I get the worst response in the world. <laughs> It's just closed for six months for repairs. And then I email them again. I'm like, please, 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 please. Can we just stand next to the pool and like pretend we're in it? And like, Finns don't give a shit about American podcasts. Like, they, that doesn't mean anything. They're like, no, sorry. And so then I actually start, part of me is like, well, maybe I can just break into the pool. And, and so I actually like reached out to a Finnish skateboarding magazine. I was like, hey, do you want to break into this pool with me? And I was actually seriously Googling things like prison conditions in Finland because I was like... <laughs> It can't be that bad. Maybe I can get an like, advanced degree. Uh, <laughs> and at this point, I, heart, like, I don't even know if there's a story there yet. And also, the estate is like four hours away from Helsinki. I don't know if it's going to be full of debris. I don't know if it's going to be walled off. And ultimately, I decide not to do it because it's a dumb idea. Uh, but I already had this ticket to Finland. And I was like, fuck, okay, I guess I'm going to Finland. I'm just going to wing it. Turns out it's very hard to just wing it in Finland. I wrangled one interview with a historian for the Alto Foundation who could talk to me about the architect, Alvar Alto, the designer of the pool. But that was kind of it. Like, that was all I could find. And I had so many days where I was getting ready to, like, whatever, go break into this pool in Western Finland. And I had nothing lined up. And, like, I, I really pride myself on being the kind of person who's prepared. I was so upset, and I fell into a very deep depression, because Finnish is a language that's not like any other language in the world, like on the language tree. It just doesn't sound like you can't make heads or tails of it. And as I went to a drink alone, and I went to the sauna alone, and I went to museums alone, and listened to everyone talk around me in this language I couldn't hope to understand, I just fell into this deep hole. And it doesn't help that the Finns are extremely reserved and keep to themselves. Like, as a, as, as a national character, they're extremely lonely. Like, it was the kind of thing where when I was on a bus, I'd see a cute baby, and I'd, like, make eyes at the baby, and the baby would be like... <laughs> <laughs> the benches. The, the, to give you an idea of the national character of Finland, this is what their park benches look like. <laughs> it's a terrible... <laughs> Really, it's a terrible place to be a friendly American, like looking for people to interview. And that's a thing. <laughs> so <laughs> I, I hit my rock bottom and I went on social media to turn to my fellow friendly Americans. I was like, does anyone know anyone in Helsinki? I just need to get a drink with someone. I am so lonely. Uh, on this stupid, useless trip to Finland, I was kicking myself for my arrogance. Like, oh, why did I think it would just like work out because I'm a podcaster? Um, and so then uh, my partner, Sam, over here, connected me um, to a friend uh, who connected me to an expat American couple. And then it turned out a person in this couple was a professor at the local university called Alto University, named after Alvar Alto, the architect who designed the pool. And this professor introduced me to some more experts at the university who I interviewed, as well as someone who I never would have found on my own. A Finnish skate park designer. <laughs> the only one in Finland. And he designs curvy pools just 
for skating. And he had been trained in architecture at Alto University. It was perfect. And it was luck again, and the story was back on. He was amazing. He knew the whole story of the pool. He was an amazing speaker. And so this brings me to my personal mantra when reporting, which is to make a plan and then abandon it. Really, or at least stray from it. Like craft an attack. Think of the story you want to tell and the ideal voices that you would want. Like create a rough outline, prepare, research absolutely all you can, and then just be prepared for everything to change. Um, this can be in the macro sense in terms of the voices you can get and who you want to speak to and the direction the story will go. Like in this case, the voices I really thought I wanted weren't available, but new ones came up. And the reason that it was able to work out, I think, like I'm, wait I'm talking about this like I'm like, whoa, whatever, I wasn't prepared at all. Like I had done a lot of reading. I had done a lot of preparation on who Alvaralto was, um, the story of the pool and how it got there. And um, because I had already done this background research, as soon as they were like, do you want to meet the skate park designer? I was like, yes, like I'm ready, I'm prepared. And I could just kind of leap into it. And so I feel like understanding the story in a broad sense and all its elements and just being prepared for it to go in some kind of different direction is great. Like being prepared invites um, a degree of luck. And I also think that this idea of making a plan and straying from it is applicable also in the micro sense in every single interview. Because when I'm preparing to talk to someone, I prepare the hell out of, out of everything. Like, if they have written a book, I will read it twice. I'll go through once, and I'll underline things, and then I'll go through again and, like, write down all the underlined parts and just be as absolutely prepared as I possibly can. And then I organize my the reading into things I want to cover and, like, create an arc that I want to go through for the interview. And then I take this document that's usually, like, four pages long, and then I put it in my pocket, and I don't look at it because... I don't think you want to be really engaged and present in the moment and ready for the interview to go in lots of different directions and for it to go off the rails and go places you weren't expecting. But I feel like having that initial preparation is what allows you to go there. And it, it, it allows it to become more like a conversation. And also people can really tell when you're prepared. Um, it's kind of, I feel like if people are giving you the gift of their time and their expertise, the greatest gift you can give them in return is like reading their shit and like really paying attention because you're using their voice. Like you have to, it's built, I think, on a foundation of mutual respect. So I think mutual respect and preparation, but I think also an element of surprise is what makes the best interviews uh, personally. So prepare, 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 and then just put it all away and don't look at it. Um, so after I got back from Finland, I was like, okay, I have to figure out the rest of the story. I knew I wanted to talk to the director of the documentary, Dogtown and Z-Boys, because that early history of skateboarding was going to be important for the story. And so after a lot of boring emails and cajoling, I was finally able to talk to him. But then, so the documentary is a fairly popular movie. A lot of people, I don't know if anyone, if people here have seen it, but yeah, yeah, yeah. So it, like everyone kind of knows this story. And I didn't want the director more or less summarizing what this popular movie was about, so I needed to find a way to make the scene come to life, which brings me to another lesson in reporting, uh, which is to bring in action. And action doesn't necessarily mean something like thrilling and wild and exciting. I think of it like when I want to interview someone, I like to go to their house or their office or something where there are elements of them all around. And you can be like, what's that? What's that? What does that mean? Basically something where you're not just in a studio and you can engage with the world around them. And so in this case, I knew that the iconic magazine, Thrasher, this really popular skateboard magazine, was based in San Francisco, and that their editor-in-chief, this guy Jake Phelps, was a real character. And he was. 
Actually, Jake Phelps has passed away this year. Um, he had a lot of head trauma. That guy skated a lot. Uh, it's wild. This guy seems so young at heart. Like, it's crazy to me that he's dead. But let me tell you, when I talked to him, the interview went terribly. Do you know the story about, like, where the bean-shaped pool comes from? The bean shape? What's the bean shape? I don't know. Like, the, the, the right hand kidney? Is that what it's called? Well, yeah. They don't call it a bean shape. <laughs> I don't know. He was really rude. <laughs> and after 30 minutes, he was like, I have something else to do. And so I packed up and left, and I was feeling really disappointed and really stupid. And then I, like, sulked at a coffee shop nearby. And then when I hopped on the bus home, Jake Phelps was there on the bus, uh, accompanied by this apparently famous skateboarder uh, named Mark Rodriguez, who was with them. And this is, like... This is the part of the job that I feel like involves a lot of bravery. I had to go up at, like, with my t- after I left this interview with my tail between my legs, I had to go up to them on the bus and be like, "Hey, where are you guys going? Can I come with you?" And it turned out they were <laughs> they were gonna go skate in the lot nearby, and it was awesome. I just got to follow them around as they were trying to find all these places to skate. Can't skate here. Nope. Oh man, it looks so good. Just one broken leg, please. So again, luck kicked in. <laughs> that was luck. That was luck. But I, again, there's this way to welcome luck, with, to seize the moment when it arises, and then be prepared to seize it. And the thing is, Jake was a jerk. He was like a real jerk to me. <laughs> and he like started hitting on me and texting me. After. It was like terrible. <laughs> but it wasn't, but here, here's the thing, it wasn't a bad interview because it wasn't dull and lifeless, it was exciting. And then, you know, in the story, I got to call him out and be like, Jake was kind of a jerk who hit on me, but here he is. Um, so the only way to make sure, you know, I think the worst thing about an interview is if it's a boring interview. And yeah, I think the biggest, the, the biggest lesson in this is, I'd say, go to meet the guests where they're at or get out in the field with your guest. Um, like one of my favorite examples of this is in an episode of Planet Money Uh, The reporter is talking to this botanist about this uh, weed he was studying. And he was like, well, can we just go out now? Can we go outside and look for the weed? And they just do. Um, I love it. And it it requires a bit of brazenness. But I think it always pays off. So after I interviewed the the skateboarders at Thrasher, talked with the director of Dogtown and Z-Boys, I still need to figure out how those two worlds connected. From Finland to Southern California, how did the pool get from Finland to L.A.? And in that initial article that my friend Andrew sent me, he made this passing mention about this landscape architect named Thomas Church, that he was a bridge between these two worlds. So I started with Google, of course, and I found that this is the first kidney-shaped pool in California. And it's just in this private estate. Like, it doesn't have a visitor list or anything. It's just some guy's house. Um, And so this ended up being the hardest thing to book, actually. I had to end up calling a lot of, like, landscape architecture societies and clubs and be like, does anyone know the person who lives on this property? Um, How can I get there? Um, And again, this is another point where preparation really pays off because in these interviews where I'm just asking around, you know, people can tell when you know what you're talking about. Um, And I think a lot of those architecture, or those landscape architecture appreciation societies are like, okay, this chick's for real. Like, let's, let's connect her. And so when I finally managed to get to the property, this like gorgeous property in Northern California, um, I wore my bathing suit beneath all my clothes <laughs> because I knew that I wanted to jump in the pool. And so as soon as we were like walking around and like talking about the architect and talking about Thomas Church, like, yeah, 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 yeah. I was like, can I jump in the pool? And I was just like ready to go. <laughs> I was like, I'm ready. Uh, <laughs> and uh, this is what it sounded like. It is bright, pristine, electric blue. 
And in the center of the pool is an abstract sculpture by Adeline Kent, which has two holes through it, one above water and one below. And you can swim through the holes in the sculpture like a dolphin, and it's insanely fun. I know because I tried it. The pool overlooks acres of dusty ranching property. And that's another thing. Whenever I'm in a place, I try to describe it, like use my recorder almost like a personal notes, uh, like voice memo, just being like, this is what I see, this is what it makes me feel, this is what it reminds me of, and then like collect a little room tone, and then I use that tape for narration later. Um, And... Yeah, and the funny thing is no one realized, like, the dirty secret of this story is that I never went to the original pool in Finland. Like, no one can tell because there's that other, like, there's plenty of pool splashy sounds. Um, So then putting it together, um, after every single interview, I do something that's wildly impractical, but I can't help myself. I transcribe the entire interview by hand, and I know there are a lot of um, transcription softwares that will do this for you now. But I think that when I transcribe, it's a very useful way of, because it's not quite procrastinating. Like, you're working, but you're also just, oh, really? Because I think there's nothing scarier when you're looking at a blank page. You're like, oh, fuck, what am I going to write? And it's easier, I find, to take, like, transcribing isn't fun. I don't enjoy it. I hate it. But I feel like if I take a week or two to just sit and sit in the tape and understand everything it says and do this kind of mindless work all the while, you know, still going out to parties and bothering my friends and my partner and talking about the thing I'm working on, the story really gets a chance to percolate. And then by the time I actually have to write, it just, it like comes out. Like I've been thinking about it so much that I almost know the structure in my head. And so with this story, I was like, which one do I want to start with? Do I want to start in Finland? Do I want to start in California? Do I want to start with the skateboarders? How do I begin? And so I just kind of like listen to all the tape. I practice telling it to people And then in practicing telling it to people, you can kind of see where people are most interested and where your voice, how you naturally start to tell it. And yeah, that helped me get to the first draft where I started with skateboarders. And so this gets me to editing, which brings me to this clip, um, Powers of Ten by Charles and Ray Eames. And this is moving way too fast, so I'm going to stop. But it starts with uh, a couple having a picnic in Chicago, and then it zooms all the way in on the guy's hand, and you get like, well, actually, first it starts zooming all the way out into space, like out, 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 into the outer reaches of the atmosphere, and then it zooms all the way back in, like in, 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 into his, like, cells, into um, his body. And I think that's really an interesting way to think about story, because you have to think about, especially when you're doing stories that aren't about people, that are about objects, you have to think about how far out do I want to zoom in or how far in. And to give you an example of that, I feel like, you know, we could have zoomed in way more about the concrete used to make the pool, which is shotcrete. It's fired out with a gun, and it allowed for these um, biomorphic, curvy forms that were never used before. Like, that could have been a way of burrowing really deep in. Or we could have burrowed way, 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 way out and talked about, um, gone more into the origins of surfing or the things that came after skateboarding and skateboard ramps and talked more about the X Games and the origin of, you know, a lot of these, this is the origin of the skate video. And a lot of these young punks like picked up cameras and started doing like modern tracking shots. And this uh, led to a whole new genre of filmmaking. So you kind of have to cut it down and be like, how far in do I want to go? How far out do I want to go? And I think with editing also, you have to decide in the story how far in and out you want to zoom. Like in this case, we made the Thomas Church 
like the first, uh, the connective tissue, that first pool in California, that was the smallest part. And the skateboarders and Finland were the larger parts. Um, yeah, uh, there's this great, I, I don't know if it's apocryphal or not, but Julie Snyder from This American Life said there are two ways to tell a story, chronological order or preview scene and then chronological order. There's not a lot of crazy room, I find, in audio for like wild flashbacks because you still have to keep track of who's talking. Like it's, as, at least as it stands now, audio is a fairly linear medium and the most the way you can play around the most is just deciding how long or how short to stay in a moment, if that makes any sense. Um, I feel like that's the most, the, the easiest way to play around. But yeah, basically it ended up being a 30-minute uh, long story, which I never would have thought was possible from all the tape I collected. And it gets into like really interesting, like the story of Alvaralto, the architect, is totally fascinating. He built that pool to look like a lake, like a Finnish lake. And it all plays into like Finnish national identity after they were, um, they declared their independence from Russia and they realized the best way to forge um, a national identity was through design and through industrial design. And Alvaralto was a huge part of that. And it was like deeply meaningful. And then he could have never known that he would have <laughs> like created American skateboarding by doing this like deeply national thing. I guess this is all just to say this was a story that involved a lot of luck and a lot of coincidence, which I think is kind of perfectly fitting because the story itself is about luck and coincidence and the places where ideas start and the places that they go and how unexpected, uh, how unexpected creativity can be and how all these elements can be in communication with each other. But this is all just to say, I think with preparation and research and a lot of passion, you can invite that kind of luck as long as you have a willingness to abandon your best laid plans. So, thank you. So we're just going to keep this pretty loose. I'm going to ask Avery a few questions. Thank you for that. That was thank really you. great. Um, and then there's a roving mic just up here. We've got two roving mics. So if you've got a question, pop your hand up and... Um, Alice or I can't see because the light's in my eyes, but we've got two vols, so um, just pop your hand up. Uh, I'm curious as to like how much you say that a lot of prep goes into it, but like how much prep and how much are you sitting around the table with other producers in your team um, and sort of like coming up with like story beats or outlines, like before you go out, how much of the story is baked, knowing that it might change as they often do. Yeah. But, yeah, how much time is spent doing um, that? Well, the interesting thing is one of the things I love about my job is we have a lot of uh, freedom. And so sometimes if I'm in a pickle, I'll talk to my my producers. But really, it's like usually just me, uh, which is pretty lucky. And I just get a lot of time to sit and think on like while making other stories like this all happens. It's not like I'm just sitting around like lazing and daydreaming. Like I'm working on other stuff in the meantime while I'm doing this. But um, the thing is, I don't. There are some people I know who can get away and do so successfully by preparing beats in advance. So like, oh, I know how this is going to end. I need to talk to someone who will give me this clip or bring it in this direction. I just can't work that way at all. Um, and I feel like I can't start writing until I've talked to every single person that I want to talk to. So in a weird way, it is kind of, it's, it's, 
this, the idea is planned out and it always changes. It always, always, always changes. Like with every single, single story I do, I think it's going to be about one thing and then it turns out to be about something else, which is a boon. And it's very lucky. I know a lot of workplaces, they want you to deliver on the pitch that you've given them. Yeah. And I, I, and it's happened a few times where people on my team will pull me aside and be like, Avery, what's this pitch about? I'm like, I'm working on it. I'm working on it. Um, but yeah. Okay. So with that in mind, sort of being given that room to, to kind of go off and shape up these ideas, articles of interest. Um, I noticed that you said you tend to think about ideas for a really long time. Articles of interest is a, is a show about clothes, you know, why we wear, what we wear and why we wear it. It's so much more than that. But uh, I guess I'm curious as to how long that idea was brewing and how it became, is it an, an offshoot of 99PI? Yeah, I guess yeah. now it is. So yeah. how, how that kind of happened and how long was that sort of happening in the background? Yeah, I've been thinking about articles of interest since I was 16 years old. I mean, it wasn't called articles of interest, but I always knew, I think from the minute, I always was into clothes. I think a lot of us as like misfit teenagers really turned to clothing as a way, because one, one of the fundamental theses of articles of interest is that clothing is a way for people who don't have power to express power to like reclaim things about their world. If, you, if you're a kid and you can't travel and you don't have money, um, how do you express who you are? So I really turned to clothing in a big way when I was, when I was uh, like in middle school, when I was 12 and 13. And when I was 16 years old, I went to this exhibit of Vivian Westwood clothes and I'd never heard of Vivian Westwood before. And she was the designer who created punk and the idea that someone had to invent design punk like blew my mind because it made me realize like, oh, this is what fashion designers do. You know, she was a fashion designer and she created this thing that looked crazy at the time and was expensive. And then it trickled down over the decades and it's become something that's so like deeply embedded in our culture and we can't imagine it not existing at all. And so from the moment I arrived at 99PI, that was kind of in the back of my mind. I was like, we need to talk about fashion. We need to talk about fashion. We need to talk about fashion. But I think I felt a lot of pressure, not out, like just internally, like no one put pressure on me, but I think I really wanted to prove, especially as someone who didn't know a lot about architecture and design going into it. I was like, oh, well, I got to learn about urbanism. I got to learn about typography. I got to learn about industrial design. Like there's so much ground to cover. And then I feel like after five years, they're like, okay, I kind of know a little more now it's fashion time. And I knew that I wanted to tell the story of Vivian Westwood and articles of interest was basically a gigantic excuse to build up episodes to eventually be able to tell the story of Vivian Westwood. Um, yeah. And did it start out as like you pitched in one episode to 99 PI or you went in, you're like, I've got an idea for a whole series. Yeah. It was, the, it was the latter, but okay. I've been thinking about it. I've been slowly collecting it over the years and talking to friends and interview. So every episode of Articles of Interest starts where I interview a friend. And I started collecting those interviews like years ago, just kind of examining, examining what possible topics could be out there. And then one day I turned to Roman with like a sheet of paper. And I was like, these are all my episode ideas. I would like to make six. And this is how much time I need. And here's where I need to go. Yeah, definitely. I was thinking about it in a tangible way for at least two years before I pitched it. Okay, wow. And so what's the difference between producing a 99PI episode and an Articles of Interest episode? Yeah, well, 99PI is a lot of like group editing and group listens, definitely like working with an editor and then bringing it to the group and we all listen to everything and we all are editing and pitching in uh, with each other. And Articles of Interest, I had a few different editors um, come in and help, but it was really just me. 
which was exciting and terrifying, like really, really, really terrifying because you don't know if it's any, at least when you have the group with you, you have assurance that what you're making is good or worthy or or not good or not worthy. And with Articles of Interest, I was in the dark for many months. I was like, I have no idea. I have no idea if this works at all. Because I think we all go into that place when we're creating and you're so deep in on a story and you have no idea if anyone else will find it interesting at all. So it's a lot of it was about just having that reassurance. And how long were you working on it? How long were you in production? Um, solidly working on it. Like six months? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Six months with six six episodes? Although I had started working on a lot of them in advance. Okay, yeah, so I had like yeah, a lot of tape in my back pocket. Yeah, yeah. Cool. Does anyone have any questions? I can keep going, but I just wanted to – we've got one in the middle. And Tim, yes. Tim doesn't have a question. Is there someone else with a microphone? microphone? No? Yeah, go, go Tim. Um, so you briefly referenced group edits then. Um, so I'm from the ABC and we just started a, a new narrative podcast about a year and a half ago and I've kind of become obsessed with this group edit process because of how powerful we found it when we started making this narrative podcast. So you've done this process with the group edit and without. How did you find that difference? Um, because now that I've seen what a group edit process can do for us, I'd almost be scared to not do something to, to not use that process now. And But was there a reason why you decided not to? Was that a decision or was it just forced upon you? Such a good question. Ah, <laughs> such a good question. Um, yeah, no, it was a decision I made. I think especially because um, 99PI has been around, next year it'll be 10 years. It has such a, um, there's a way that we do things. And it changes slowly over time. Like if you listen to episode one and the most recent episode, they don't sound similar at all. But um, I do find that group edits have turned into this like well-oiled machine and we have a way that we do things. And there was a lot of, I wanted to hear what I sounded like with articles of interest. And I think now that I've done a, a first season, I would be totally game to go back to group. <laughs> I think I needed to know. I think I needed to strike out and be like, what do I sound like if I'm not smoothed out by this like amazing Cracker Jack team of eight people? Um, so I wanted it to sound a little rougher. And then of course, in the end, I was like, dear God, someone edit this. I don't know if it's any good. Help, help, help. Are you available? Are you available? So uh, like I thought it was what I wanted. And in the end, I actually ended up asking for more editing because uh, I was scared. It's very scary to not have it. <laughs> But yeah, so it was a decision I made. I don't know if I would make it again, but I guess I'm pleased with the way it turned out. It's so easy to romanticize in hindsight. I'm like, yes, I regret nothing. It was so lovely. And I was like a mess. I was really, really nervous. Um, But yeah, group edits, it's a problem with hive mind in any capacity, right? Like you can get something really, really like well-oiled and slick, but you're not going to get weird, weird shit, you know? Not like Articles of Interest is that weird. It's still like a podcast. But. Hey. A bunch of the interviews and the example you just gave came about spontaneously and you had the research so you were prepared to just dive into them. But I imagine most of your interviews are um, organized in advance. Do you do a pre-phone interview or do you send the questions to your guests so that they can give better, more succinct answers or do you keep them in the dark? I keep them in the dark. I don't do pre-interviews, which is like a dirty secret. Because I think a lot of other people at 99PI do. I don't. Uh, 
because I have found every time someone I've done a pre-interview with someone, I'm like, oh, oh, oh this is so good. Wait, 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 no, 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 no. And um, then when I talk to them, they're like, as I mentioned on the phone, I'm like, no, just <laughs> pretend. Fuck. Ah. <laughs> or you know, it's hard because it's not. It's counterintuitive and it feels performative to pretend you're saying something for the first time. And especially a lot of the people I interview are academics. They're not like naturally inclined to be like, like performy and put on a face. Um, or the thing is, so now I'm working on a podcast with Vox called Nice Try. And they have a great system worked out where they have, I mean, it's very lucky. I have like a team of people who will pre-interview guests for me. And then I get to interview them, which is like the best of all worlds because they get to scan them and be like, okay, this person's a good speaker, this person's not so good. And then they get to tell me things for the first time. So that's like ideal, but that's really lucky. Like I've never had that opportunity before in my life. And I, I would be curious to know if you've had luck sending questions to people in advance because, oh my God, I've had no luck with that. I think, uh, at least in the States, I think the number of PR agents to journalists has been like 16 to 1 now. Like everyone is so, really, everyone is so nervous about sounding good and qualified. And even when I've loosely been like, I'm not going to send you my exact questions, but I'll send you loose topics. They like write things out based on the loose topics and they have a sheet of paper and they're bringing it in the room. And then it feels like, I feel like a real dick being like, can you just take this and not, not do that? So yeah, I keep them in the dark. Um, I have a question. Have you ever d done a really important interview and then realised the tape quality was so bad it was unusable? <laughs> I'm trying to think. I mean, as you saw with my first slide, I really pride myself on having bad, <laughs> bad uh, recordings. So I've definitely gone to, like, I reported a story in Taiwan and the wind was just like... <laughs> like, oh my God, I went all the way to Taiwan for this, like terrible tape um but I'm trying to think the weird thing is I'm very lucky in that I don't interview famous people because I get very starstruck and I would be like hamana 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 so I haven't had an experience like that where I've interviewed someone uh someone fancy but no you know in a weird way it's funny I think people's ears are becoming more refined now because in the beginning when I started like five years ago I remember I recorded an interview with one guy in a parking lot and they're like cars whizzing by and like no one cared and we put it on the radio. Uh, and I think now everyone is starting to, under myself included, and the general listenership is like understanding what good tape is. So I've had to learn to adjust. I'm going to jump in and say I definitely have done that. Yeah. I've also not turned the recorder on. And I think that like there are mistakes that you definitely make to begin with and you often just do it once. And it's so traumatizing that it never happens again. But I do want to ask you about starting out and the way you sort of got into audio because you went to college with design sort of in the back of your brain as something you're interested in and your parents are radio producers. So it feels very neat that you've ended up working on 99PI and I'm wondering if there was any chaos like in starting out in audio, like how did you sort of come to it Yeah. Um, and was it as neat as it looks? <laughs> no, I mean... Nothing's ever as neat as it looks. But yeah, no, it was, it was really lucky to have parents who worked in radio. They met working in radio. And so they were always like, yeah, radio, that's a job. They weren't like, how will you feed yourself? They're like, people do that. Um, and so we always grew up with the radio on, and I always learned to love the radio. But the weird thing is, so apparently it's different here in Australia than in the States, because in the States we have this extremely exploitative like internship model. 
which, because here it's like community radio, no? Yeah. Eh. Complicated. Oh, God. And so, yeah, I applied to a lot of internships, and oh, my God, it used to be, I think interns have gotten, internships have gotten better in the States, but it used to be if you interned at WNYC, they paid you $10 a day. Yeah, and and so it was only one day a week, and so I'd like work in a restaurant, and then I'd go to New York, and I would intern for one day, and they had like a roving roster of interns, each doing it for one day a week, so they'd be like, you, intern, like they didn't know my name, it was like terrible. And then I applied to intern at NPR every summer while I was in college, and then my senior year I got it, and all of these internships, they just weren't sticking, like the goal it's really terrible. Like the goal is you get an internship so you can become a temp worker so that you can just like, it, it's like one, it, it's like a job interview that lasts for years. Like there's this pool of temps and they're all just begging to be hired and you're all just trying to outproduce each other and outperform each other. It's really terrible. And so I was having a hard time even breaking into that temp pool. I was just an intern forever. I had so many internships. And when I heard there was an internship for 99% Invisible, I was like, oh God, this is going to be like my fifth internship is this going to start to look bad on my resume? Is this going to be like this person has been an intern forever and never got into the temp pool? And so I applied to the 99% Invisible internship as a lark, like at midnight on the night it was due. I was like, let me just bag it out. Like, we'll see what happens. And then it changed my life. Like, And now I'm, and then it turned into a job and now I'm here. So it was really like lucky, super lucky. And so the thing is like, is that neat? In a weird way, it's kind of magical, but in hindsight, it felt super messy. And I was like, what am I doing? Should I just, <laughs> should I just give up? Um, and I interned for a long time at 99PI before it became a job. I didn't really know if it would, I wasn't planning on moving to California. I had one duffel bag and I was like, let's just see how long this internship lasts. And it lasted six years. Um, you mentioned uh, earlier about people's ears being more refined. Do you think that's a good thing? Ah, <laughs> I mean, in a, of course, like, yes, in a weird way, it's nice when people are like, oh, they're going to know that I did this awesome cut, you know, like, they're going to hear this fade. It's going to be amazing. But I do think, <laughs> but I do think it makes a higher barrier to entry. And also, I'm not, this is the bad part. I prided myself on not being very technically proficient for a long time, being like, I use this cheap microphone, like, I don't even use a windsock, whatever, I'm punk. <laughs> I'm like, that's not good. <laughs> that's not good. So I've had to learn a lot more about sound and EQing, and which is great. It's nice that I'm actually being forced to learn my craft, but I do miss the days when I just carried a recorder around with me at all times. It was just recording everything kind of willy-nilly, and it felt like there was a lot of joy in the messiness. So, yeah, I don't know. There's definitely something to be gained and something to be lost. Hot potato. I'm not the most original question, but what's your favorite podcast right now? Right now. I mean, the, the number one answer I always give with people is um, the Paris Review podcast. Have you ever heard it? So good. The Paris Review podcast is beautiful. It's just like amazing storytelling. It's like stories from the Paris Review performed by extraordinary actors. Like it's so hard to get good podcast acting and it's really well scored. It's very subtle. It's not like, um, and then I heard steps in the hall. Like it's really, really subtle and beautiful. And it's kind of like people's ears getting more refined. They just treat your ears with such respect. Like they've gathered all the sound themselves in this very loving way. Um, so I, 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 love, I love that show. 
And it only has like 10 episodes. I hope it comes back. What else do I love? I love I love a lot of them. Imaginary Advice. Helen Zaltzman turned me on to it. Started with an episode called Six House Parties. Do you know it? Yeah. Over there. Up, up the back here while the microphone's being passed around. Hello. A um, couple of questions. Uh, it's one question with a couple of parts. So firstly, I, I read uh, an article that uh, recently that you were inspired to do a podcast uh, with an eclipse. Did that happen and uh, it, it was attached to an eclipse festival or something a couple of years ago? Did that happen with the idea and, and, and what happened to that for you? Um, so it was interesting. It was actually an assignment. Someone was like, we're doing an eclipse festival. Would you like to come do a story about the eclipse? And I love a good assignment. I love an assignment. I think it's the best thing when someone just hands you a prompt that's out, totally out of your wheelhouse. Like, I didn't know anything about eclipses. Um, and it was really fun to delve into that world and uh, research and read all about eclipses and how many people... Okay, so an eclipse is how... I'm going to butcher this because this happened like a few years ago. So I'm so sorry. I don't remember all this exactly. But like an eclipse is part of why Europe exists because some like king looked out on his balcony, saw a total eclipse and fucking died. <laughs> he just saw it and keeled over because he thought it was the end of days. And then his sons had to, to divide up his massive kingdom and they split it up into France and Germany and Italy. <laughs> it's totally crazy. And just hearing about that history of eclipses and the wild reactions that it's elicited in people, there are all these absurdly human stories behind eclipses and what they mean and how important they've been in our lives and the, the moments in time where people have been afraid of them. You know, there used to be this, this, theor this the overarching ethos was like, don't go outside, there's an eclipse, watch it on TV, like close all your windows because you'll get blind. And now we like go out and we wear the glasses and we love eclipses. So it's just interesting kind of examining it in a cultural context of like, what does this say about us? And, these, and we go back and forth uh, in time of loving them and fearing them and loving them and fearing them. And it's also kind of cool because it's this moment that scientists and like witches and it's this perfect merger, like the literal alignment of the spheres of science and spirituality in every culture. And it's this one moment we can all agree on that like it's significant and it means something and it's cool. So it turned into a talk. But the weird thing is I feel like there's not – this is a moment – it, this is a moment where it's very easy for me to romanticize the ABC. I'm like, oh, I wish there was like a giant place that was just making radio all the time and you could just pitch them stuff. And it feels like I just, I have this piece and it doesn't have a home because it's not, a, it's about, it's not what 99PI covers. It's not about fashion. And so there's not a good re repository for all the miscellaneous stuff in America. I guess NPR, but the NPR uh, segments are really short. You know, they're like four minute long news stories. So it exists, but. Can I ask you about that? Your new podcast, which I think the first episode dropped yesterday, yeah. maybe. Nice Try, which is about like design fails and what we can learn from them. You've developed a bit of a beat. Are there things outside of design that you've sort of got your eye on or are you like extremely satisfied by design and all the hidden stories there? That's such a good question. Um, well, the thing I love about design is it's, I mean, it's about people, right? It's about like the things people make. And I find that it's easiest and most telling to tell a human story through a third party object. So you're not, I'm very rarely like, so, you know, 
tell me about your father. Like, that's so hard to me. Like, that kind of interviewing, the people who can do that kind of emotional interviewing, like Hannah Joffe Waltz at This American Life, is like, oh, what, how? And it's so much easier, I find, to talk to someone else about this building or this pool or this article of clothing or something and then slowly let the emotion and the depth trickle out of that discussion about this object and what it means. In a weird way, it almost feels like I'm cheating, that you can get this human story by talking in this non-human way and you don't have to look someone square in the face and ask them like exceedingly difficult questions because those stories always do come out. So yeah, I like the design beat. I like it a lot. Can you hear me? Yeah. Oh. Cool. <laughs> Thanks, Avery, for your talk. I ad identified so much with like the discussion questions and then putting them in your pocket because I do that all the time. But my question was, I'm a freelancer and I think a lot of people in this room are as well. Um, I write really, because I'm so anal, I, t I write these really tight pictures. But because I'm a freelancer and halfway through the story, I want to do something else. But I have to stick to my, my pitch. Got any tips on how to write a loose but good pitch? Ooh. See, I'm spoiled because I feel like everyone on staff knows that my stories change all the time. So I do write out like a fairly loose pitch and try to leave it with a lot of leading questions that are like, this will be about the pool's impact on our world, you know? Um, although... I don't know how it is here, but sometimes when, when, when freelancers come to me and they're like, hey, the story that I'm working on has changed, I'm like, yes, let's talk on the phone. Let's work it out. I don't know if there's like a lot of tolerance in the story, in the editors you have, in the places you work with here. It's so funny. I can't imagine a pitch not changing. Like to me, that seems like a crazy expectation. Like you're going to get all these voices and it's going to be like beat, 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 beat. And it's just going to like tie up nicely in a bow. So I'm so sorry. I'm trying to think about like how I write pitches. I feel like it's less about the pitch and more about how you're going to go back and be like, the story has changed. And it's like a re-pitch. How do you re-pitch and be like, look, I know I promised a story on this. Yeah. That's not going to happen. But yeah. like, how do you sort of do that maneuver? Yeah. Oh, I feel like I turn to people and I'm like, listen, this person, you know, I have the transcript here. You can read it. They're an amazing talker. Maybe pull some cuts and be like, it's just slightly, it, it very rarely like does a full 180. Be like, I thought this was about swimming pools, but you know, actually it's about the pharmaceutical industry. Like it's, <laughs> it's, you know, it's always like loosely within the framework still. It's different on staff. It's different on staff. And I can only say from an editor's perspective that I love it when people come and they, and usually it ends up being like a long phone call and a discussion about like what this means to you. Have you ever had the situation where you have interviewed someone and they've been rubbish or there's just no way to incorporate it? And how do you feed that back to them when they wonder, oh, where was my voice? Oh, yeah. I try, this is my least favorite part of, uh, the, the awesome thing we get to do is reaching out to people uh, after the show is out and saying like, hey, show's out. Thank you so much. And you just like <laughs> hit send and like hold your breath until they respond to you. And I never feel okay until my guests write back to me. Um, but I do, weirdly enough, I find the people who got cut are way more gracious than the people who are in it. 
Because um, I'm always just like, hey, thank you so much. You're amazing. You know, we only have 20 minutes and you ended up on the cutting room floor, but you were so valuable as background, because everyone's valuable. It's like background research. And I always like make sure to thank them in the end credits and Roman says their name and usually they're like, oh, that's fine. But yeah, it's the people who, because no one likes the sound of their own voice. No one. And I feel like the people who are in it are the ones who are like, you didn't cover this and that, or they have thoughts. So weirdly enough, I'm less scared of that. We might take one last question. Was there a mic here? Yeah. Um, this is probably a pretty vague question. Um, but one thing that really resonated from your talk was when you were saying that um, kind of having an ignorant perspective on design or like not being an expert on typology, urban, whatever, um, is like an advantage sometimes because you have that novice perspective which helps people like explain things to you and be excited about it. I guess I just wanted to hear a bit more from you about like how, what the difference is in when you're approaching something that you are kind of new to, like swimming pool design in Finland versus something that's a passion project that you've like wanted to tell the story of Vivian Westwood since you were a teenager. Because they seem like they would require really different creative approaches when you've been stewing on one story forever versus coming into it. I just wanted to hear a bit more about that. So that's the thing. I feel like being an amateur gives me a a fear, like a very healthy fear, especially when you're interviewing like an expert. And it just helps me make sure that I read as much as I can and I'm as diligent as I possibly can. And also I feel like when you know, it's so hard when you know a lot to not be like, oh yeah, I know, I know that already. I know that already. If, if your expert is referencing something and there's something really refreshing about being like, oh no, tell me, I actually don't know. Um, or at least being like, oh, no, I've only heard about this recently. Um, but the funny thing is I felt like I, you know, even though I was fascinated by Vivian Westwood since I was 16, I didn't know much about her. Like I had to go back and start doing a ton of research. And um, that was another reason why I wanted to start covering fashion is because I felt like over the course of six years, it kind of felt like I had gone to school for it. I was like, oh, I kind of know what's up with architecture now. I'm not an architect, but I like know what styles are what and why things vaguely, like why things are the way they are. Like I can talk about it now. I can talk to architects without feeling like I need to read a bunch of books, you know? And I felt like I needed to turn to fashion because I don't know anything about it. I don't know how sourcing works. I don't know how stitching works. Um, I don't know anything about Vivian Westwood's life. And so in a weird way, it was nice to feel that fear again and feel that hunger again. Um, and I guess that's the thing. And ironically, that's the best part, I feel like, about being an amateur is that it makes you research more. Um, and when you're comfortable, I found it was way too easy to rest on knowledge that I thought I had already accrued. And then there's always more to learn. Like there's always, always, always more to learn. And it's easy to put blinders on when you think you know it all. Okay. The secret is just like become ignorant about everything. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> okay. Unlearn everything. I love that. Drop out, everyone. <laughs> <laughs>that was Avery Truffleman in conversation with Audiocraft's Jess Binnis. Thanks to Tegan Nichols for recording this session. The Audiocraft podcast is produced and mixed by Ryan Pemberton, and the music is produced by James Milsom. If you haven't already, subscribe to the Audiocraft podcast. New episodes from 2019's festival will appear in your feed every week, and there's a whole back catalogue of audio advice for you to explore. If you liked this, check out the episode from 2018 where Robert Smith lifts the lid on NPR podcast Planet Money. 
Every story has to have two things. It has to have this huge idea and it has to have a reason to keep listening. It has to have a story. We'd love to keep in touch. Sign up for our newsletter at audiocraft.com.au and find us on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter. We're at AudioCraftFest. Fest.